0: You're listening to ReachMD on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Inspired to Act is presented by PrimeMed, your leader in continuing medical education. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, and senior medical advisor for PrimeMed, Dr. Martin A. Samuels. Are there lessons for all doctors based on the way neurologists see the world? Joining us to discuss the present and future impacts of neurology on the practice of medicine is the immediate past president of the American Academy of Neurology and Professor Emeritus at the Medical College of Georgia, Dr. Thomas Swift. Tom, welcome, and thanks for being on Inspired to Act.
1: Thanks a lot, Marty. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Tom, of course, I know you very well, and I've seen you in action at the Academy of Neurology where you were a spectacular president of what is the largest... Neurology Society in the World. I know you've talked about how the way neurologists think and the way they view the world has implications beyond neurology, the practice of neurology itself. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit.
1: Well, thank you, Marty, for those kind words. My first wife told me that the reason I was a good neurologist is that I had a catastrophic view of the future. And <laughs> <laughs> but, but actually, it isn't really that. It's, neurologists have an analytical way of looking at things, which is, I think, unique to the specialty. We are very much into listening to our patients and trying to determine what the patient's symptom could possibly mean and really having two lists. We have one list, what's the likeliest thing it is, and then go down the list, less likely, less likely. Then we have another list, is what's the worst thing this could be or what could involve patient safety. We always have that in the back of our mind. So that's the way we look at things. And I think it's deeply ingrained, at least when I was in training, it was deeply ingrained then, and I've carried that all the way through. I've been practicing neurology for 42 years, and that's never left me. That's the basic core of it, I think.
0: A lot of people think that neurologists are always localizing in their mind, trying to figure out where things are before what they are. Do you think that's part of that thinking process?
1: Oh, yes, and I think neurologists that really are the best always try first to do an anatomic localization and then use a differential diagnosis to try to explain what might be causing it in that location.
0: This, you would think, might be an antidote against too much testing. You know, too much testing is a disease of modern medicine. It's expensive and it's dangerous. seems like this way of thinking could be an antidote for that.
1: I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, there are a few studies, there aren't enough studies, unfortunately, that have shown that when a neurologist is involved in the care of a patient, that the outcomes are better and the costs go down. I wish we had more studies like that, because I think in the upcoming administration, that's going to become very
0: important. This issue about a neurologist being involved, you know, we neurologists, we have a bad reputation among other doctors and medical students. There's the old saying, diagnose and adios, right, Tom, where people think neurologists make a good diagnosis, then they can't do anything. Do you think that's still the case?
1: I don't think that's true anymore. It certainly might have been a lot more true when I was in training, but it's not that way now. You know, if you just look, for example, at the journal Neurology, which when I was in training was published 10 times a year, And it was a tiny little volume, and there were virtually no advertisements in it. Now, Neurology is published weekly, and it's a thick journal, and it's crammed full of advertisements for treatments for every kind of disease you could possibly think of. It has been a dramatic change over the years. We have treatments for practically everything now. I wish we had more treatments, and I wish we had better treatments for some of the worst diseases, but we still have some therapies that modify even those.
0: It seems as though uh, we still have a public relations problem with the internists and the emergency doctors and some of the surgeons who hold on to this old view of nihilistic, accurate, but useless neurologists.
1: I think that's probably true, and I think part of it relates to the fact that we're speaking a different language when it comes to those other specialties. They don't really understand neurology very well. I think, interestingly, in the United Kingdom, general physicians are better neurologists, and general surgeons are better neurosurgeons than they are in this country, I don't know if it's still true, but up until recently, general physicians were evacuating subdural hematomas in the United Kingdom, and general neurologists had a pretty clear understanding of neurology. In our country, it's so easy to get a neurology consult that a lot of physicians say, well, if it smells like neurology, we'll just get a neurologist in here and we won't have to think any more about it, and they don't think any more about it. So I I think there's a gap there.
0: Yeah, it's true. I mean, of course, in the UK, those general physicians better know some neurology because I think there's about 350 neurologists in the whole country. Isn't that right?
1: There's very few.
0: You were very active in a large organization, the American Academy of Neurology. It has many brother and sister organizations, people who are listening to the show. Of course, very few of them are neurologists, but there's many, many other types. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you think the societal function of these organizations are. A lot of people, I think, think of them as being self-serving. They're mainly for the specialists themselves. Do you see it that way, or do you think it's for the patients as well?
1: Well, you know, if you look at our mission statement at the American Academy of Neurology, obviously improving patient care is one of the three big things. Another one is, of course, service to our members since we're a member-driven organization. It is both, really, and another mission of the Academy, like every other medical organization, is to be sure that the Academy survives because it is, in a sense, the spokespeople for neurology across the globe more than any other organization, I think. So, I mean, even though we're the American Academy of Neurology, we are the major neurological organization in the world, and I think that is a very powerful voice for our patients. When I was president of the academy, I spoke to the people from Medicare and and many politicians on the Hill to let them know how the policies that they had were affecting the care of our patients, not always for the good, I might add. You know, as neurologists, we have a unique way of putting things because as the population is aging now, a lot of these neurological diseases are becoming more prominent because our people living are old enough to get them now. And therefore, there's going to be a lot more, a greater need for neurologists for accurate diagnoses and hopefully, for some of these terrible diseases, treatment in the future.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Inspired Act on ReachMD Radio on XM 160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Samuels, and joining me to discuss the present and future impacts of neurology on the practice of medicine is Dr. Thomas Swift. Tom, this brings up a very interesting issue that I've talked to two other guests about, and I'm very anxious to get your opinion, and that is this so-called pay-for-performance business that's going on where there's a checklist, you have to do certain things, and if you do, you get a little extra money for doing this. And the rationale that people have is that doctors need to think more about society as a whole and less about their individual patient, which is the old tradition. How do you react to pay-for-performance?
1: Well, the Academy has been involved in producing performance measures that could be used because we were afraid if we didn't do it, not that we are that supportive of the concept, but if we didn't do it, somebody else would create those measures for neurology. So we've been involved in creating those measures. Let's assume that such a system could actually be done and actually put into practice and actually have some meaningful value. There might be some value in it. We at the Academy have published guidelines about the treatment of various diseases, and these are very, very heavily used. I was opposed to them when they first came out because I thought taking care of patients, was, especially neurological patients, was too complicated, and you couldn't reduce it to that. But I have to admit that these have been very useful and very heavily used. In fact, they're one of the most popular things that we produce are these guidelines. I'm a little bit concerned that too rigid adherence to these guidelines. After all, they aren't rules, they're just guidelines. Too rigid adherence to them by, let's say, insurance companies or the government or Medicare could result in adverse actions toward physicians. But let's say such a system could be put in place. And so what would happen is if you followed the guidelines, you get an additional payment from Medicare. And Medicare now pays more than 50% of all the medical care bills in the United States. So it's a very important thing. And I think the insurance companies would follow suit like they do with everything else with Medicare.
0: Well, it's interesting your reaction to it, Tom. I'm actually surprised in a way that you have been won over in a way to this. I'm very concerned about these. There's no doubt that they're popular, that people uh, like the idea of having these crutches and saying, well, this is how I work up a neuropathy, and these are all the things that I do. But uh, in actual fact, I'm afraid it's deprofessionalizing neurology and deprofessionalizing medicine. Aren't you afraid it's going to just turn people into little computer automatons?
1: I think theoretically I agree with you, but if you actually read the guidelines, there's enough latitude in them so you can apply them liberally to your patient's problem. I don't think there's so much of use to the expert neurologist. I was profiled by Blue Cross Blue Shield in my state, and they compare me to every other neurologist in the state. And they just use, for example, let's say the number of consultations I order and the number of tests I order. Well, when I looked at the graph, I'm the best neurologist they've got. I order the fewest consultations and order the fewest tests. And However, I'm working within the guidelines. There are some things in the guidelines I don't like and I disagree with. For example, if you were unfortunate enough to have a child with autism, for example, well, the first thing you would do is get an MRI scan and have this patient seen by a child neurologist. Well, our own guidelines say you don't need to do either of those things. And I went around the room at one of our board meetings and I asked everybody what they would do if they had a child with autism. They all said they would do something which is contrary to the guidelines. So it is problematic to some extent. However, I think for the majority of things, for someone who is not an expert neurologist, the guidelines might be useful.
0: Let me ask you this, Tom. You've been very interested in role model physicians. When you were president of the academy, you went around and interviewed people. And actually for your address to the academy which I thought was very unique. Instead of giving a speech, you actually just showed the words of other people. Who do you admire? Who do you think are the people who are doing a good job? You know,
1: I think there is nothing as sophisticated or as difficult as being an expert neurologist. And I think it goes beyond psychiatry. It certainly goes beyond neurosurgery. We're dealing with the nervous system, the most complex organ. And so the people that I most admire in neurology, I have to be honest with you, are not the people working in the labs, finding the new genes. But my hat's off to them because that's obviously the future. The people I most admire are the same people I admired when I was in training, the people that are expert clinicians, that can understand patients' problems, that can communicate with patients, and that can communicate their ideas to trainees and to medical students and to families of patients that have diseases, and explain it because just as Nancy Newman pointed out in the interview I did with her, is it's very empowering for somebody. And I think for a patient, it's very empowering. When a patient goes to a doctor, I think mostly what they're looking for is that, is this person trying to understand my symptom? Is this doctor able to explain my symptom to me? What does this mean for me? It has so many implications. Where is the problem? What is the problem? What's going to happen to me? People are afraid when I go in, and it's a very, very comforting thing. I remember working with Jerry Posner when he first started the neuro-oncology service at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City, and I admire Jerry so much because he's one of the best neurologists that ever lived, in my opinion, and he's not only a terrific researcher, but he's a wonderful clinician at the bedside, he's extremely humane, he's very thorough, he knows lots of tricks on how to examine patients and take histories and things. That's the kind of thing I really admire. I think you're that way, Marty. I'm not trying to toot your horn here, but I feel the same way about you. I feel that you way. You read about that
0: me. line perfectly. That line I that, that I feel
1: read way. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that way about Tom Saban. There's a physician at our place, Fenwick Nichols, who's a stroke neurologist. He's so terrific. He's so wonderful. And to me, it's a very, very sophisticated. Uh, requires a very high degree of intelligence. I wish it was rewarded better. The essence of what we do as neurologists, I wish that was rewarded better financially through the payment services that we receive.
0: Tom, it's wonderful to talk to you. And actually, obviously, a lot of what you say, even though we're laughing about it, does apply across many, many of the specialties of medicine. People are going to be really inspired to hear your words. I wish we could talk longer, but unfortunately, we're out of time. I'd like to thank my guest, the past president of the American Academy of Neurology and Professor Emeritus at the Medical College of Georgia, Dr. Thomas Swift. Thanks so much for spending time with us this week on Inspired to Act.
1: Thanks a lot, Marty. I really enjoyed myself.
0: You've been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD on XM160, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels and presented by PrimeMed, the leader in continuing
2: medical education. At Prime Ed, we believe in you, the practicing healthcare professional, and we support your commitment to your patients. Our goal is to give you the tools to stay up to date with the latest developments in your field, whether you treat day-to-day patients and their average and not-so-average illnesses, or patients dealing with diverse chronic conditions. Prime Ed's CME programs are designed for you. We know you each learn differently, that's why we offer education in a variety of formats. Live because you like to interact with peers and faculty. Online because it's convenient and available to fit your schedule. And in print because of its portability. Regardless of the medium, PrimeMed delivers knowledge that touches patients. PrimeMed CME is developed through extensive collaboration with leading professional associations, academic institutions, hospitals, technology companies, and over 1,500 prominent faculty. With over 120 live meetings and 300 plus online CME activities, 350,000 healthcare professionals globally trust Primed as their source to stay better informed and educated in today's always on world. We invite you to join us in person at an innovative, cutting edge meeting and clinical education program. If it's more convenient, visit Primed online. For more information, visit www.pri-med.com. That's www.primed.com. Thank you for learning with Primed.